0: Andy, this one's for you. What are the differences to be aware of when raising funds for a 501c3 operating foundation instead of a 501c3 public charity?
1: Mm, It's a very, very specific technical question. Luckily, the answer is very short. Um, And today, there's very little difference between an operating foundation and a public charity. So For those of you that don't know what a private operating foundation is, it is a flavor of 501c3 that is more of a private foundation than it is a public charity. Um, But it's a private foundation that spends more than I think it's 85 percent of its revenue on charity activities. So it's kind of a sort of a hybrid somewhere in between a private foundation um, which doesn't have to, which can have a, a closed board of directors. It doesn't have to show that it's got public support, the trade-off that you usually get with a private operating foundation, a private foundation instead of a public charity. It, so in order for that close control, um, the trade-off is that you have to pay excise taxes on like investments, um, that there's a rule that you have to give away a certain amount of the money every single year, even though it's incredibly low and um, gifts that go into a public a private foundation um, have to be a lower percentage of your adjusted gross income than it is for a public charity. So in normal years, it used to be thirty percent for a private foundation, fifty percent for a public charity. Um, since COVID times, that got raised to sixty percent for a private, or sorry, for a public charity, and then for two years there it was hundred percent of AGI. Um, But the operating foundation is the numbers are usually the same as the public charity. So if a public charity is normally 50%, a private operating foundation is also 50%. So to answer your question, which are what are the differences to be aware of? None. From a fundraising perspective, it doesn't make any difference to you at all. From a governance and operations perspective, sure, there are lots of differences. But from a fundraising perspective, you don't have to worry about it.
0: Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit boards. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources.
1: Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurik and Stacey Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am here with my fabulous co-host Andy Shurick and... We are back with you again. How are you doing? We hope all is well in your world. In this season of gratitude, I just want to say how thankful I am for each of you. Our listeners, you occasionally send us a love note telling us something positive or something you like about what we're doing. We appreciate that. We also are open to constructive feedback. Don't hurt our feelings too much. Just kidding. No, you can be real with us. We want this to serve your needs. So if there's something we're not doing or we could do more of let us know and you know where to find us nonprofiteverything.com and uh, discord and social media and all the things and uh, we'll look forward to uh, connecting with you hopefully through a question you send us
1: Okay, Stacy. here's one for you. We're having a terrible time finding fundraisers. I know part of the problem is how much we're able to pay, but we're also finding very few qualified applicants. On the other hand, we have some excellent program staff that I think would be great fundraisers. Plus, they would earn more. Do people ever grow fundraisers from within? How could we do that?
0: Oh, the time-old problem, isn't it? Um, I mean, this is something that everyone seems to talk about, and it's not in all states throughout the country. I just hear communities struggling with not having enough seasoned fundraisers. So uh, you are not alone, and I would say I'm going to say yes, of course. I think you can do anything, and I think you can grow fundraisers from within, uh but i think you've got to really give some thought to what is that employee's that interest if you think it's a great idea as their boss or the person doing the hiring or who sees that they have this amazing potential that's one thing but do they have any interest even if they're good at it do they have any interest in that at all in my experience i find program people are wired differently And what motivates them is wired differently than fundraising professionals. And so you sometimes find that unicorn that can wear both hats and understands both and understands how both can help support each other. And then those can be phenomenal fundraisers uh, because they get it, right? They get the bigger picture. But I think that's really rare. So... When you say how would we go about it, I mean, I think the first step, which is probably overly basic, but is to have that conversation. If you haven't had that conversation and you see potential, I think it's about talking to your your program staff or those from within that you think have the have the kind of raw skills to do well in this and having that conversation about what you're thinking, what what their interests are, whether they would even be open to the idea. And and really laying it out, I think, honestly, for them about here's what how the expectations would change, here's how your job would change, here's how you would be evaluated, and it will look differently than what you're doing with programs versus fundraising. So, so I don't think you want to kind of make this a, it's easy because you see a need, so it's easy to sugarcoat this and really try to show someone all of the great parts of being a fundraiser. And yet you have to get really real with them about, here's what the reality looks like. Here's the different kind of pressure. You have pressure in both positions, but it's a different kind of performance pressure. You've got the board looking at you more. You've got, you know, looking at our fundraising outcomes more. You've got... Uh, myself, right, the rest of staff starts to kind of shift when you move into a fundraising role. So so I think in some ways, you really have to have that honest conversation mm-hmm. or even potentially hook them up mm-hmm. with somebody else in the industry who could share that expertise with them. Like, hey, I've I've done development and fundraising for years, and here's what I have experienced and here's some of the common challenges and opportunities with it. So I think that's that's really a first step. And then from there, let's assume on the positive side that they, that they take that forward and they are interested in pursuing something like this. Then I think the question becomes, is it a bit of a hybrid between program and fundraising? Is, is there some uh, shared responsibility for those functions or it, is it a full transition to fundraising? And I've seen organizations do both. Um, I've seen organizations where they kind of restructure the way fundraising and programs work together so that it is a joint team effort. And when that happens, uh, it's just a whole kind of department restructure or several departments get restructured to support this new model that you would introduce. But but then, you know, from there, you can give them, there's a ton of technical skill training out there. I think it's much more about the personality uh, in this case. I mean, technical skills, anyone can learn. But do you have someone who is relationship-oriented, detail-oriented, someone who's persistent and won't get discouraged by a no? Uh, do they have high emotional intelligence? impeccable integrity. Those are the kinds of things that, that you really need to make sure that this person has besides just the ability technically to do it. I think it's even more so their, their demeanor, their personality, their style. So that's, that's my two cents. Andy, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think you're exactly right that you need to, you know, it's not something that's automatic because there are so many different moving parts and it is a very different skill set probably between the two that it's not something you're going to just be able to move somebody into that new role and expect them to automatically succeed. But I think sort of if you take a step back and think about it, not in terms of we're moving a program person into a fundraising role, but look at if I wanted to move any person in my organization to a different role, like, how would you go about doing that? And th- and then that comes down to do you have, do you have like a list of roles and responsibilities for each position that you have in the organization, and like what kind of person you want, like sort of a a higher level HR look at it, which is what kind of people do we want for these roles? Um, because then you're starting to look at what exact skills are we looking at, it? and then it isn't going to be, you know, did I hire somebody bright in the programs department that I can then move over into fundraising? It's like what people in my organization have the skills that fit what I want for a fundraiser to have. And that works for any other role. What, what skills do, does what people in my organization do I have that fit the set of skills that I am looking for, for in a program person, right? You might move somebody from someplace into programming because that's where they seem to work really, really well. Um, I think on the other side of it though, too, is like, like this is this question kind of comes out of the sense of urgency. Like we can't find any fundraisers, can we do this? Right. And the answer is sure. You can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, nah, knock yeah. yourself out. Right. But, but if you look at it in less of a sort of emergency request kind of thing and say like, should, like, should we move people around in our organization? I would say absolutely. I think some like me personally, some of the, the best experiences I got were like early in my career when someone would say, you need to also know this, yes. right? If you're going to, if you're going to survive in the nonprofit world, you have to know how fundraising works. I think I've told this story probably 20 times on the podcast too, is really early in my career. I was just a, I was an intern at an organization and one of their sort of common practices that they did is that any interns would sit in on board meetings. And we were, and it was like in a conference room, we're like sitting at, we weren't like in the corner and folding chairs. We were like sitting at the table with the rest of the board members. And that was absolutely eye opening for me, because this is something that it's just a black box. You know, if you're, if you're in the organization and you're not in a leadership role and you don't interact with the board frequently, a lot of times you think that that's just, who knows what that is. That's like, it's, it's a bunch of people that are really powerful and they come into this room, then they close the doors and they meet for two hours And then everybody leaves after they ate all the snacks. Right. And you don't know anything about what the actual process is and being able to sit in that room and then sort of just watch people as they're like looking at the material for the first time (laughs) and trying to figure out how. Right. Like getting that experience early on really made me understand how important it was to understand everything about an organization. And I say to people all the time, like you talk to somebody and they're like, oh, I could never do fundraising. That's just too hard. Like, well, it's actually not hard it's just different from what you're used to. And you personally may be uncomfortable with this sort of concept of asking someone else for money, but that's because you're unprepared. You don't know that there's tools that you can use to be able to be better at it. You don't know that there's training you can get to be better at it. You don't know that there's a lot of people that have done it for a long time that can say, here's how I learned it. Like maybe this is all the information I have. And you can actually skill up in that particular activity. So I, I think it would be cool to make it a part of the organization in general to say, like, you know, everybody here is an ambassador for the organization. Everybody here is a fundraiser. Everybody here. I mean, you may not be going out and doing individual asks of wealthy people. That might not be something that they're going to throw you into at the beginning. But you should understand, like, why direct mail exists and how that functions and what, you know, the science behind that and why we're asking people for money and how it fits in with the rest of the finances. Um, I think the more holistic your staff is in terms of knowing how to do different jobs, the better your organization is going to be as a whole. So I don't know if that helps in this this specific situation, but but can can program people be fundraisers? Sure. But, you know, just like all the stuff that Stacy said, it's you just have to like it's more about the person than it is about the 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 job title right yeah
0: and i think sometimes people shy away from fundraising because they have a picture in their head of what that looks like and they aren't aware of the tools and they aren't aware that There's a whole lot of other parts of the fundraising process and development process that are beyond just making an ask. And this person may not even have to do that, depending, I mean, they'll probably do some degree of that in in a fundraising role, but, but there's so many other pieces of that. So I think there's some education too, so someone doesn't just go into it with preconceived notions about this is what fundraising is. And those of us who've seen bad fundraisers and people who you do feel like they're making these cold calls and kind of track hunting you down wherever you go, which is not, of course, what you want to do if you're a professional in this industry. And and yet we all have that kind of used car salesman picture in our head of those, right? Oh, those really bad circumstances. And so we, we need to do a better job as a sector telling people that's not actually at all what this is like. And- so many people, if you are a people person, you can do this, like, like you could do this, right? And so it's accessible to you. It's not being slimy. Half the time, if you're doing your work well, half the time, you don't even have to make the ask because people are like ready to give you their money because they're so impassioned by your program success, by everything else. I mean, you, I know some people who are listening to this would go, oh my God, Stacey, you have to ask. And I, you do. And yet I've also found when you do all the other parts of development and fundraising properly, sometimes like you don't even get to that part of asking because someone is already that enthralled with what you've done and you've done, you've helped make that happen through your stories, through the rest of your organization and how it's run through, through the impact you're making on the lives you're touching of those you serve. And so I think there is, endless opportunity to grow fundraisers from within. And I also think we have to do a better job as a sector of looking beyond the typical pool. So that's what's happening out there, right? Everyone's just kind of posting in the usual spots or they're looking at the typical pool. And if someone doesn't have five years of fundraising experience or in a development position, they they don't even allow them to, to come in the door. And some of the most successful examples I've seen are people who make those sort of non-typical hires, the, the ones that maybe someone came from business development in banking or a different industry, or maybe someone, I, there was once uh, someone who I knew got hired in development who was a concierge for a local hotel and was literally the most amazing donor services donor relations person you could ever want, and it was that kind of core transferable skill set. So I would also say to you, mm-hmm. um, not only looking within, but but getting a little creative with what are some transferable skills and in industries that you could also, uh, you know, post jobs, you know, job position openings to or reach out to. Andy, this is an interesting one. As a newer executive director, I find that when funds are tight, it's sometimes difficult to figure out where we can get the most value for our money in terms of helping our nonprofit grow and excel. In your opinion, what are the top three areas that are worth putting more money towards in order to make a nonprofit successful? Mm.
1: This is... This is this question. I think is specifically designed to send Andy down a um, hobby horse rabbit hole, where I just talk about my favorite subject, which is cash flow, for the next two hours. <laughs> this is like the totally. You've heard the term nerd sniping. This is how you nerd snipe me is with this exact question. <laughs> um, so one of the and so we'll do the short version. So so from a financial perspective, what a nonprofit should be thinking about is not necessarily like revenue and expense, but what they should be thinking about is how do I flush as much money through my nonprofit to or to in order to get the largest mission impact, right? So that's the question that you should be thinking about whenever you're putting your budget together, whenever you're talking about staffing plans, whenever you get like you know, Aunt Edna died and all of a sudden you just get $3 million on your organization, which is a huge windfall for you and you need to figure out what to do with it. But the question that you should ask is like, what's the the best use of this money in order to get the largest mission impact? And the, in order to get the answer to that question, it's not actually a finance question. You don't have to do any, you don't even need Excel to get the answer because you should be looking back at your strategic plan. Your strategic plan is the tool that you use to figure out what the the highest and best use of any cash that comes through the organization is to be used for doing these particular programs. And if you've done it a few times you can see which ones are the most efficient. Like if I had more money, I could do this, you know. We if if and and this should be part of your strategic planning process as well is especially once you become more mature and you've been doing this a little bit longer, you start to see like, this is, these are the opportunity areas for us that we can't hit right now. These are the things that we need to be focused on. Um, So if we did get a big bequest or something, this is where that money would go. This is the best place for that money to go. Um, And it's different for every nonprofit and you kind of have to go through the planning process to sort of figure out what it is, but you're going to know what it is. You're going to know what the core, the core things of the organization are um, and where the best use of cash is going to be if you do have a big windfall. So the question here is, if funds are tight, and we need to figure out what you know, what are the critical things we need to spend money on? It's it's sort of the same question, except that instead of thinking about this massive windfall and how are we going to spend it, you need to think like, what do we need to do to make sure that our organization continues to exist? How are we going to make sure that enough money is flowing through our organizations so that our core programs continue? Um, and then, and then, and then that gives you your answer there. So it's really hard to talk about this in a vacuum. So I'll use, I'm going to try to use a sort of a real world example to kind of explain it. So I worked in the, I do a lot of work for food banks now. I was the CFO of a food bank for a while, and so I kind of think in terms of food bank stuff is the easiest thing to do. One of the biggest bang for the buck programs that we found in in food bank world was food stamp outreach or SNAP benefit outreach. So what people typically think of food banks doing is collecting donated food as much as possible, working with those donors to be able to bring it all into the community and then helping agency pantries get that food out to hungry people, right? So it's this sort of flow of food through the system. And what we realized is that we can also spend time signing people up to be able to get SNAP benefits, and then we don't have to pay for the food because it's something that they are eligible for as part of an entitlement program. You know, SNAP is a federal program. What If they're ed- eligible for it, we can get them their SNAP benefit cards, get them all signed up. And that process isn't that – it's not hard, but it's not, like, super easy either. Um, get them so that they can get that SNAP card so that they can just go to the supermarket and buy whatever they want, right, within, you know, the parameters of the program. Right. So that was like sort of the biggest bang for the buck program that we found. So if there was extra money and we could like, that's how we, th- that was the thing that had the biggest impact multiplier when it came to money coming into the organization. And- Unfortunately, from a donor perspective, it's not a sexy program. You know, it's hard to sell a donor on, you know, what we really want to do is we want to get people government benefits, right? <laughs> like depending on the donor you're talking to, that's not a great conversation to have maybe. I don't know. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but it isn't the one you would lead with if you were walking out and asking a foundation for money or a donor for money. So it may be different than that too and figuring out what that core bang for the buck program is. Um, The other thing we see is, like the, the 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 challenge that you come up with when money starts to get tight is is not that the, that the 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 organization itself is no longer going to be able to um, like support itself. Like you worry more about like so a for profit business worries more about um, are we going to go out of business? is our our liability is going to be higher than our assets and we're going to have to declare bankruptcy because we can't get any more loans, right? So a nonprofit actually that equation doesn't make any sense. Like nobody cares about how many how what the size of your net assets are. It's like it's a meaningless it's a meaningless thing to think about in terms of a nonprofit. What you really need to be thinking about is like, how do we get access to enough cash to be able to continue to operate the organization so that we can continue our mission? Because the money should just be like a river; it's just be flowing by you, and you should be dipping into it, and like, and like dipping back out of it, and not trying to create a dam and make a lake and collect as much money as possible. You want the money to blast by you as soon as, as fast as possible. And so, making sure that you have all those cash flow cash flow tools in place to make sure that you know how to, like, if don't if donations start to dip, like, how are we going to continue to do our core programs so that we don't like burn ourselves to the ground by getting rid of employees and stopping doing our program and stopping our outreach and, you know, God forbid, pulling the plug on a direct mail thing in the middle of it, which takes years to start back up. Right. You should know what kinds of things are our core activities that you're going to need in the future that you shouldn't, you know, that's sort of the life support system of your nonprofit donations, like making sure that your fundraising stream is still working. That's sort of a life support thing. Making sure you've got enough cash to continue to pay your employees. That's sort of a life support thing. You get electricity for your building. Um, Those are sort of life support things as well. So thinking about it in terms of like what's the minimum level of life support stuff we need and saying that that's the baseline and then everything else should be funding towards programs. That's the way I would look at it. But using your strategic plan is sort of the the, the tool that you use to determine what those programs are is I think the the key to this one.
0: I concur with the strategic planning comment. And i I had a different way I approached this or thought about this when I read it. So there were three things that just like came to mind immediately that I thought if I'm in those shoes, I mean, layer on the strategic plan with it. But I think we know that nonprofits historically underinvest in infrastructure. We know there's a whole lot of systemic issues in the nonprofit sector of why that is, but sort of the basic foundation to be successful. So we may, you know, so people tend to, you know, the the sexy thing is keep putting more money in programs or keep putting more money in X, Y, Z and yes that is that is why you exist that's your mission you're trying to serve more people and all of that and yet you can do that so much better sometimes if you actually backtrack and think about well what is it that's really slowing this down what technology so technology was one of my top ones i was like what how can technology make your life easier more efficient streamline may reduce what some people have to do um, on your staff, right? So they can you can channel their energies and their talent in other ways. So, talent, you know, technology to me is is always an investment that seems like it's underutilized. I mean, I, I mean, and there's again, it's tough to raise money for these dollars. So I'm I'm just thinking, but if I had leverage points and I was the executive director, I'd say, all right, how do I where what are the technology investments to help make us more efficient? and make us more effective. And I would make investments around that I would look at for me, the other thing that comes top of mind is good people. People are not changing. So whether it's your program people, whether it's your admin people, whether it's your fundraising people, whomever those people are, like, we know the cost of losing good people. So if you've got depending on the size of your staff, what are you doing to retain them, especially in today's market when we've heard about all of the challenges in the la- the labor market la- these days and retaining staff and, and people's priorities have changed and want more flexibility, want a hybrid work environment, want all of these different things. Well, how do you create that so you don't lose the time and money on losing good people and then hoping you find the next person and then the ramp up time and training them. And we know the expense with it. It's huge. So to me, that almost goes top of the list. And then technology is a piece for me. And then I I just think those 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 things that create leverage. Your example, Andy, is a good one but what are those sort of pivot points where investing in this has sort of a ripple effect on three different levels? And so, um, you know, there's a lot of examples of it. And yet I think that that kind of thinking and the bang for the buck, what's your biggest bang for the buck can really help as well. Um, I know I've talked about this in prior episodes, but I, I would also encourage you and I think it's called the Sustainability Matrix, uh, and we can put a link to it. I know you can put it in a search engine and and just find it and pull it up. But it's a it's a great tool where you've got, you know, on, on the vertical axis, you've got whatever profitability on the horizontal axis, it's impact. And you start to just do a little bit of analysis so that you can look at things objectively and you look at all your activities, not just programs, but... And you look at those and you see, wow, this one's up in the upper right-hand quadrant because it's it's making us money and it's the mission impact is huge and it's right in line with our mission. So we need to invest more in that than we do this lost leader over here that we're losing money on and that has sort of subpar mission impact. So I think tools like that are really, really helpful in getting out of your head and just sort of plotting it out, even if you don't want to go through like a full-on data analysis you can do this like super just kind of back of an envelope or you can do it uh probably the way someone sophisticated in finance like Andy would do right where you actually do this pretty methodically and use real real data to inform this process which is obviously ideal but if you don't have the time and you're just sort of like you have a sense if you're tracking and following um the cost of providing the services and programs you do you have a sense of it so um those are those are my thoughts and I just Man, people—it's all about the people. That's that's my uh, <laughs> that's my call to action to you.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Is like the the we saw this during the pandemic too? Is these organizations like all like a lot of them freaked out? They're, they looked really uncertain, and you know, the Chronicle of Philanthropy publishes like, oh, don't individual donations are going to crater? Like through panic—that's <laughs> basically the headline, right? And everybody just like like really got upset. Well, that's why we talked about furloughing. Remember a couple of, probably two years ago now, we did an episode and somebody said, what about furloughs? And Stacy and I reminded everyone that that's just a term that people made up to make it sound like firing you was like more pleasant than it really was. Um, like keeping, making sure that you can still do the work and that you don't undercut your business when things get tight is is really, really smart. Make sure that your board is on board with maybe salting away a little bit cash a little bit of cash for a rainy day like one of the things that we talk about too is like don't call it a don't call it a rainy day fund don't call it a <laughs> um something that sounds like you're just salting money away tell them that you're you're pre-funding future activities like like give it give it something positive, positive spin that we need to sort of Make sure that we've got this, this stash of money so that we can jump on opportunities when they become available. And the opportunity might be not losing a whole bunch of really good staff that are going to you know, wander off because you can't pay them right now. Um, so, yeah, I think Stacy's 100 percent right. Focus on the staff no matter what you do. Make sure that you've got those folks that can do the work for you. Stacey, remember a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes back, we, we noticed that Thanks for Listening to Nonprofit Everything was the first two lines of a haiku. There's five syllables in the first one, syllable, seven syllables in the second line. And we, we challenged our listeners to complete the haiku with a five-syllable sentence. And we got a few. I just want to share what has so far, keep sending them because um, we'll, we'll we'll absolutely share them when we get them, but I just want to share one that came through that um, almost killed me because I was laughing so hard because it is probably perfect. So here's the quest. Here's the, here's the completed haiku. Thanks for listening to nonprofit. Everything galas suck. (laughs) 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 It was just, I think that's, I don't know that there could be a better one after that, but if you're going to top it, please try. (laughs) But so far that is clearly Clearly the front runner in the, in the nonprofit everything ending haiku contest. That is that is
0: epic. And clearly this person must be an avid listener since yeah. they, they know that's a hot <laughs> hot button of
1: ours. They knew exactly what was gonna make me laugh.
0: Thank you for the laugh.